Our text is John 20, 19 to 29. The title of the message is Blessed Are Those Who Believe Without Seeing. But before we get into that, I want to mention something else about fathers. I saw this this week and I wanted to share it with you. You'll see this come up behind me. This is from a study that was done recently. When a father attends church, there's a 93% chance that everyone else in the household will too. There's uh, many books and many studies have been done on this, but that's the reality. I recommend a book to you if you haven't read it. I highly recommend it, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Uh, It's very, very insightful. written by a, a man from Alaska who has a, a grasp on why we have in many churches an absence of men and whole families. But I wanted to say to those of you that are here that are men in the church, kudos to you because it is not that common in America today. And you represent men very well just by being here, by being a person who's willing to be in church when other men are not. Bear with me for a minute because some people listen to this online. So if someone is listening to this online and you're not getting in a church, get in a church. And if you're here today in person and you're not regularly in church, I encourage you to get involved. It had a huge impact on me, as I've repeatedly told this group, when on those rare occasions when I was taken to church, when my mother would point at the men who would walk by, and she would say, that's a godly man. And a little boy who thinks that Spider-Man is someone to aspire to be, when you point at a real man uh, that your mother looks up to and respects, as a little boy hearing that, That was, I can do that. I can't be Spider-Man, but I can do that. And so that was always inside of me, that I wanted to be like that, like a man that somebody might someday point to and say, that is a real man right there. So good for you if you're in church. May you continue because there are people that are watching you and they think you're it. Now, before we get into the text, we need to review where we came from. If you'll remember last week, we had Jesus, it was a very significant event, is the tomb and the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, a very powerful thing. And when you bring in all the synoptics, you get a bigger picture even today, because today there's missing things. So when you bring in all of the Gospels, all four, the synoptics plus John, we get a, a a very clear picture of what happened. So Jesus rose from the dead. It was a powerful thing. Angels were there. An earthquake happened. The stone was rolled away. Even though the guards were told, make sure you seal it, guard it. We can't have the Jews claiming or his followers claiming that he rose from the dead because that's what he said he was going to do. Now, his own people didn't understand this, but those who didn't believe, they understood it. So, hey, we got to make sure this doesn't happen. So they secured it, multiple guards. There's all kinds of 
stuff that happens that's not in John. So that's why you'll see a plus come up behind me. This is review plus. There's extra. So not only did he appear to, to Mary Magdalene and she told people, hey, he, he's alive. They didn't believe her, the disciples. But he also appeared to others. Another thing that's not mentioned is in John is that the, some of the guards went, they didn't go to the Roman officials. They went to the Jewish leaders and said, you're not going to believe what happened because they saw Jesus rise from the dead. And they paid them, what Scripture says is, a lot of money to tell this story. Tell them you fell asleep. And the Jews stole the body, or the followers of Jesus. Okay, okay. So they went away and did that, and they said, we'll cover for you. We'll cover for you. And, and this, according to Scripture, this is repeated even to, all the way to today. And so we can guess that that means to today, fast forward to us. But there's another thing that happened that we don't talk about very much, really, especially if we're studying through John, because there was another thing. Jesus appeared also to a couple of people, disciples, that were very traumatized by the fact that they thought all hope was gone. We thought he was going to be the king of the Jews. We thought he was going to save us. <laughs> and, and they killed him. And it was three days ago, they were talking about this, you know, and telling this to someone they met on, a, on the road we call the road to Emmaus. If you don't know, Emmaus, they think, was about a three hours walk. That's a significant walk from Jerusalem. And so then we have this story that Jesus is actually there with them and they're telling them, you're not going to believe this. We, you know, and then it turns out that's Jesus. And they sit down and they have a meal together and that's kind of cool. And then, so now we, we and in fact, they didn't really um, come to believe that he was real. They, they, they thought he was a spirit until he ate with them. But we have something we pick up today in our text in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week... That's Sunday night. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, it's a pretty cool thing. And when you put all the stories together, it's, they, they still... They thought it was a crazy thing because the door was locked, and yet he appeared with them. And it's with the 11, actually, uh, except for Thomas. It's with 10. And he says to them when he stood among them, and by the way, you know they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid because they just killed their leader. And there will be persecution, as Jesus predicted, so they're, they're right to be afraid. And so when he says, peace be with you, this is a very cool thing. And it's a common phrase that he's already used many times. But when he said this, and he showed them his hands and his side, uh, they realized it was him, and they were so glad. And there's a thing that came upon the room 
called equanimity. I've talked to you about this before. Something that Jesus had, and it's something that is contagious. And I highly recommend that you let Jesus grant you this so that you can grant this to other people. It's a great witnessing tool if you have equanimity. That means calmness in all circumstances. No matter how crazy things get, even in a tragedy, being calm is a good thing. Having Jesus' peace can help you have equanimity. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating. I have a question that you'll see, a question mark come up behind me. Because the Holy Spirit, I have multiple questions about the Holy Spirit, and so do you, I'm sure. Because there's so many different ways we could approach this, and we've talked about these things before, not in great detail, but there's multiple things involving the Holy Spirit or elements of. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when God moves within a Christian and even not a Christian to convict someone by the Spirit. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't have done that. There's Also, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. It'll come up again in a little bit. That's the Holy Spirit living in Christians. There's the manifestations of the Spirit, things that would demonstrate that someone has the power of God that is emanating from them in some supernatural manifestation. There's the intercession of the Holy Spirit. When you don't even know the words to say, He will speak on your behalf. There's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a very confusing subject today, because there's a whole branch of Christianity that seems dedicated to sensationalism inside the church, a very self-centered way of trying to get your own gratification by some sort of a sensational experience. And if you don't do this, you haven't really arrived at Christianity. Maybe you've been in a church that does this sort of thing, and people get really, they get caught up in the hype. They love the hype. They love the emotional, euphoric experience that they get in church. And if you don't have that, well, you didn't really have a a spirit-filled service then. If somebody asks you that, so is your church, what kind of church do you attend? And they say, is it spirit-filled? What they mean by that is, Do people get up and jump around, and do they speak in tongues, and do they wallow on the floor, and all these kinds of things? Uh, They don't want to say, is it Pentecostal? Because then that scares people. So they say, is it spirit-filled? It's like a code word of, if you say yes, then they go, oh, okay, good, you're like me. And then you can start getting all sensational in your conversation and get this emotional euphoric experience right there with somebody else and think that you're actually glorifying God when you're actually building up yourself and your own emotions. And Christianity is not about that. There is the baptism. Oh, we're not there yet. We got another one. Fruits of the Spirit, that's important, mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, backing up to the fruits, if you think about this, there are people that think 
and they actually teach in these churches that are focused on self-gratification that fruits of the Spirit must include uh, an experience where you just have no self-control. You just Have you heard this? You just kind of cut loose and have no self-control. But if you read Galatians 5, a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. <laughs> All right. And we'll continue uh, talking about, besides baptism, there's also the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's something that is uh, mentioned and is something that, in fact, it's in, in Romans, it's emphasized in Romans chapter 8. And it's a powerful thing when Paul's talking about, um, I don't do the things I know I'm supposed to do. And the very things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The things I know I'm not supposed to do, I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And he goes on to talk in, in the transition in Romans chapter 8 about Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that helps you through these difficult times. Well, which one is it in these ones? And I've only mentioned nine different elements of the Holy Spirit. I'd say our text is talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's complicated. Because when we, you get to Acts chapter 2, it's specifically, we have the apostles, namely Peter, preaching that you're to be baptized for the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit of baptism. But according to Hebrews... We're told that the will isn't put into effect until there's a death. And at this particular time, Jesus has just died, rose from the dead. So there's these people in transition. They've had John's baptism of repentance, but not the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes after Pentecost. Pentecost has not happened yet. So that's why it's complicated. But we have a little bit more controversy in the next passage. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this is the launching pad for the Roman Catholic Church that teaches about popes. And also teaches, you'll see the other subject pop up behind me, absolution. Is that what this is about? Absolution is this idea that a pope has the ability to forgive other people's sins, ultimately. Absolve them from their sins. You go to a pope, he forgives your sins. And if he forgives your sins, then they're forgiven. That's it. Through the pope. Is that what this is talking about? Is that what it says? That's certainly not what it says, but that's the launching pad. And please don't misunderstand, I do not have any animosity towards the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just talking about what the Bible's teaching compared to what is taught in another um, branch of Christianity. What is it talking about? Well, I think it doesn't, I don't know if you know much about church history, but if you're going to understand church history, you have to read the book of Acts That is the history of the church in the first century as it began. You get to see it in full color as you read it. You'll see the visuals and you'll understand how the church began and how it continued in its incipient stages. So if you want to know some great details about how 
Christ set up His church. Read Acts. There it is. And if you go into Acts, you don't have to go very far to learn. Is that really what happened? Because the idea is that after the apostles, they were able to then have popes that would take their place. And they, of course, the Catholic Church says that Peter was the first pope. But then after that, there were other popes. So let's go and see if this is really the case, that after the popes, after the apostles, then they had popes, and then the apostles could forgive, and they would be absolved of their sins, and that's the way it works. So you got apostles' forgiveness, then that's it. And then you got popes' forgiveness, and that's it. Is that really what the Bible's teaching? Let's go into Acts. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. For for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there you go. And there's that controversy that comes up, you know, should we only baptize people in the name of Jesus or should we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, the Great Commission says in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. And this would back up that answer because these people didn't even receive the Holy Spirit because they're in that transition. Pentecost has now happened, but they had been baptized before, so that didn't come with the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why there's a controversy. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit. If you want to read ahead, you can go to Acts 19 and you can learn. There's more. There's a few more. Paul's like, do you not have the Holy Spirit? What is that? We didn't even know there was a thing like that. Well, then what kind of baptism did you have? Well, John's, which is a baptism of repentance in in Jesus' name, kind of baptism, but not with the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit because they were baptized before Pentecost. Oh, that's how why that makes sense. But it continues. We'll read on. Verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, a special way because the people were in transition. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That idea, you know, of the apostles making popes, whoever they decide, then then that will just pass on that kind of power. But Peter said to them, verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. This next verse is the key. Verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Oh, wait a minute. If if the text before that we were reading in John means that the apostles could have absolution, because they're like the first popes, you know, they can, for whoever they forgive, then they are absolved. They're forgiven. These men can forgive sins just like God. If that's the case, then why in Acts do we have the first pope telling this guy, you better repent and hope you are forgiven. Pray that you are. Clearly, Peter couldn't forgive him and absolve him of his sin. 
He told him, you talk to God about that and maybe he'll forgive you. That's why he says, if possible. He has to repent, change your mind, and pray for forgiveness. There's not an idea in Peter's head at all where he can say, I do not forgive you because you are wicked and you'll never be forgiven by God. So there, you're condemned. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you're forgiven, you're good. He doesn't do that. Or beg me to forgive you and I'll forgive you and then we're good. He doesn't do that. He says, repent and talk to God. So clearly those who misinterpret our passage in John are, are missing something. So let's go back to it. You'll see it up behind me again. I want you to know something you wouldn't know in the English, but it screams off the pages in the Greek. This is in the perfect tense. And because of that, this can be translated in a way that most translations do not do it because it, doesn't, it causes more confusion for a lot of people. But let's go ahead and change one of these lines. Look at this. If you forgive the sins of any, they have already been forgiven. Look at the next line. Change it to perfect tense. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it has already been withheld. Don't forget what just happened before. The Holy Spirit was given to them. And then he says this. And I, and I don't have the word popping up on my screen for you. But the apostles were given something that was very special, that definitely made them unique as elite disciples, different than those that were on the road to, Demaio, uh, to Emmaus and the other disciples. These apostles were special. What is it that they had and that he was especially giving them in this particular moment? That gift is called discernment, and it's a supernatural discernment. How do the apostles know who to heal and who not to heal? Because they didn't heal everybody. In fact, think about this one. The apostle Paul, remember his story? Begged God for healing, and God chose not to heal him. Yet he could raise people from the dead. How did they know who to heal and who not to heal? I mean, it wasn't just random, because, I mean, if... Paul could raise somebody from the dead. Peter could heal people. Why, not, why couldn't Paul, if he didn't want to heal himself, why not just say, Peter, can you heal me because I got this thing? They couldn't do that. They had discernment. They knew it was God's will to not heal some, but to heal some. That was a thing. They had discernment. And pay attention to this verse because I think it's very important that we try to wrap our heads around this. If you forgive the sins of any, and, the, and everything else is literally translated, that's why I, why I changed the lines, they have already been forgiven. You understand, we already know that God's grace is big, and oftentimes we're judgmental when He is not. Too many times we, we don't get it right. We, do, we, we think we, we put ourselves in the position of being the judge, and we're not. But the disciples had special discernment to know who God is forgiven and who He's not forgiving. And that's important. And I think it's important for us to know that when God chooses to be gracious, He chooses to be gracious, and we don't get to have anything to do with that. When God chooses to be stern, 
He chooses to be stern, and we don't get to make those decisions on behalf of God. Just know that he makes those decisions, and our spirit should be in line with that. I hope you're tracking with me. But this is not talking about popes, and it's not talking about absolution. It's talking about discernment, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, John chapter 20, verse 24 continues. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, which is an interesting thing. It's a fascinating thing to me when I think about Thomas. He had a twin. So he had a name where they called him twin. You'll see that in some of your translations. He was not with them when Jesus came. So that's why there was 10 and not 11. So other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and, the, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's one of those things when that other passage I was telling you about tells of Jesus coming in. It was a very cool thing because he came in through a locked door and suddenly he appeared. That sounds like it's just his spirit. However, he ate broiled fish, to be particular, with them. And as he did this and talked to them, they became aware, oh, this is real. It's really him, not just a spirit. This is the physical Jesus. He ate with them. And here you've got Thomas not believing. I don't believe it unless I see it for myself and I touch him. I'm not going to believe it. It's an interesting thing because when you read Luke's account, and Luke is the doctor, the one that's very focused on physical things, especially when it comes to medical things, and he seems to actually highlight supernatural healings. Look at Acts. He wrote Acts as well. But in this particular account in Luke, it indicates that really he didn't touch him. Look at John's account. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Again, he goes through a locked door. Wow, that's pretty cool. In the other accounts, we are told that Thomas... Hang on, I'm going to go on. I'm going to give you the rest because I've, I've eliminated a slide. We're told that Thomas, you know, just like here, he... He wants to believe, but I'm not going to believe it unless I touch him. <clears throat> Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hands, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, notice in John and in the other accounts, we do not have a record of Thomas touching him. Luke implies, no, didn't happen. So even though he said, I must touch, it looks like he didn't. It looks like he saw him and thought, oh my goodness, here he is. But I find it interesting that we are told Blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet believed. That would include us. We are blessed because we didn't physically see Jesus risen from the dead. His physical body ascended to heaven and somehow transitioned into a spiritual place. His physical body is no longer here on this earth. There's no decomposing components anywhere. His body went to heaven. And I don't know how God did that, but God did that. And we don't get to see the physical Jesus. What we get to see is the historical account in Scripture and other extra-biblical historical accounts. We can weigh the evidences, but we didn't get to physically see Jesus risen from the dead. And we are told we are blessed because we believe and didn't get to see the physical Jesus risen from the dead. That's special. However, I would like to say to you, if you're one that struggles still with believing in Jesus, I I would like to say to you in an open challenge like I will anywhere else, then you're unwilling to look at the facts. I mean, the facts are overwhelming. I don't care what you're talking about. You want to look at the archaeological facts? You want to look at the historical facts? You want to look at the scientific facts that support the whole idea that we find of God, Jesus, and the Bible. In fact, why don't, why don't you even look at the element of time itself? Do, do you realize every day, you, you, do you know, this, this is Father's Day, you know this. How come? Because we have a calendar, we keep a calendar. What's it based on? It's based on a historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Time itself lends itself to the reality. Jesus is real. And blessed are you who believe who didn't physically see him. And that would include all of us. Practical application for today's text. First of all, there's four things, by the way. We need to learn to be more forgiving. God does forgive people. And he forgives sometimes the most unlikely people. (laughs) And we used as an example, we dipped into the historical book of Acts. And as we did this, we saw Peter. And if you'll remember, Peter is one of the disciples who royally messed up by denying Jesus three times. A highly unlikely character to perpetuate the gospel. But God is very forgiving. We tend to not be. We tend to hold grudges. We tend to be bitter. We tend to cling to things when we shouldn't. And sometimes, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes there's there's a huge therapeutic thing in forgiving others that we just, we haven't tried it. We don't want to enable people, but we also don't want to embitter ourselves by not forgiving. So we need to learn to be more forgiving like our Lord. Second, in a a world where peace is hard to find, Jesus provides contagious equanimity. And if you're one that already has it, I highly recommend that you let it be contagious. If you're in a situation 
and this happens to you where someone indicates that they notice, how come you're calm? Tell them where your peace comes from. Tell them how you found it. Because in this world, they're hurting. They're hurting for hope. They're hurting for wisdom. They're hurting for peace. They need Jesus. The third third thing, non-eyewitness believers are blessed by Jesus. Having faith is a very cool thing. I recommend having a conscious step into the light rather than a blind leap into the dark. Examine the facts and you will find that anything that puts itself up as a fact against God, Jesus, or the Bible doesn't hold water. And the fourth and final thing is Jesus will go out of his way to ensure his people are okay. Did you notice how he did that? You've got a couple of people in the story about the walk to Emmaus who are very distraught. They thought all hope was lost. And he went out of his way to make an appearance to them so that they would know it's going to be okay. Did you notice the disciples were very afraid and they were locked inside a room? And as those ten were in there, Jesus appeared to them. And he ate with them and comforted them. But there was one straggler, and God set this up for a reason. Why do you think God made this happen? Why did he have this one of the chosen twelve originals I mean, he had different ones. He had Judas who betrayed him. He had Peter who denied him. And he's got Thomas who's a skeptic. Because there's always skeptics amongst us. Some of you were skeptics. Thomas was a skeptic. God knows that that's going to be the case in a given crowd. There's going to be a skeptic. Thomas was with Jesus with so many miracles. And yet he was still skeptical. Ah, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus went through the barrier of the locked door somehow, miraculously, to enter in. I mean, he could have left it alone. Could have just left it. Thomas, you know what? You snooze, you lose. You weren't with him. Or, you know what? If you don't want to believe, and you've got 10 people that are giving you testimony, you don't want to believe, that's on you. But instead, he went out of his way to make another appearance, miraculously, to show Thomas, and Thomas was comforted. Jesus will go out of his way to ensure his people are okay. In fact, if you're here today and you're struggling with something, maybe this message was just for you. Maybe you needed to hear that fourth thing. Jesus will go out of his way to make sure his people are okay. Are you okay? Do you feel him nudging or reaching out to you right now?